Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Sunday, September the 10th, 2023. Wall Street is shut today. The markets are shut. But that doesn't mean we can't discuss them. Uh, yesterday, excuse me, I'm going to cough. <coughs> yesterday, we had an interesting show with the historian Nelson Lichtenstein. He has a new book out on Bill Clinton. Um, a Fabulous Failure, the Clinton Presidency and the Transformation of American Capitalism. And Lichtenstein's argument is that Clinton failed because he didn't take on Wall Street. He didn't try and control Wall Street, uh, so to speak, tame the street. He blames uh, Robert Rubin in part for that, or certainly the conservatives or relative conservatives around Clinton. This is, of course, a perennial issue in my discussion with uh, uh, Nelson Lichtenstein. He argued that not much has changed. I said, what about the digital economy and new, new opportunities, new structures, new, 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 new ways of doing business? He said, nothing much has changed since the New Deal or even the turn of the 20th century. And we can still learn a great deal from uh, the New Deal, which is appropriate because we are talking not just about the New Deal, but taming the street today with my guest, Diana uh, Henriquez, who is a very distinguished journalism, a financial journalist. Some of you will be familiar with her best-selling book, The Wizard of Lies, a book about Bernie Madoff. And she's back now with this important book, Remembering How FDR Quite Literally Tamed the Street. She is talking to us from Hoboken, just over the Hudson River from Wall Street. Diana, welcome. Congratulations. The book is out next week. People can already order it. Um, I don't want to talk too much about Bill Clinton, but do you think Nelson Lichtenstein has a point? I really that, do. That uh, Clinton missed the boat, so to speak, in terms of taming the street? Yeah, there's a, there's a wonderful quote that, uh, about that Clinton uh, offered at one point in private, but it showed up in a, in a later biography where he was saying that, you know, basically the Democrats of his era are Eisenhower light. They were uh, Republicans of the Eisenhower uh, uh, ilk uh, in their dealings with, uh, with business. And, you know, this, this isn't a novel phenomenon. The Democrats of, of Franklin Roosevelt's day, were divided among those who were progressive and determined to render Wall Street and capitalism um, safer for ordinary Americans and those who opposed any form of federal regulation for Wall Street in the Democratic Party. So there's, there's long been this divide uh, among Democrats. I agree with Nelson that it became especially consequential um, in, in the Clinton years. Um, and I, I think one of the uh, turning points for the relevancy of the regulatory machine that we got from the New Deal came in its neglect under Clinton. So I, I heartily endorse what Nelson has to say, and especially what he had to say about how we have a lot to learn from the New Deal. That's why I wrote this book, obviously. Your, your book is not a dry academic book. It, it brings 
the late 20s and early 30s to life. Remind our viewers, our listeners, uh, Diana, unfortunately not everyone is as well-versed in history as, as you are. Remind us of the America that FDR came to power in. Well, FDR came of age uh, in the 1920s. And, you know, the Hollywood image of the 1920s, a jazz age America, um, is, uh, is rose-colored glasses. Um, it was, for the average American, uh, a time of uh, strife and struggle. Um, while it's true the, the economy grew very strongly in the years after World War I, um, it was an extremely lopsided prosperity, one that left behind enormous swaths of laboring Americans. Uh, millions of jobs were wiped out by modernization, automation. Uh, millions more were wiped out by, uh, uh, by uh, cons changed consumer demands. So looking back on the 1920s as some kind of golden age of prosperous economy is just flat out wrong. Um, in, in fact, if it hadn't been for a last minute surge in crazy lending on Wall Street, we probably would have had the 1929 crash two years earlier. It was bad enough when we had it. Um, in, it started in late October 1929. My book opens on the first major day of that crash. Um, and it um, shocked the nation in a way that um, it's hard to replicate now. Um, but it, it was a, a moment of, uh, of terror. I mean, the markets of the day moved very slowly by our for our calculations, obviously, or you can look at your Apple Watch and find out what your stock is trading at. But for the people in 1929, these were the most modern, automated, um, uh, incredibly competent markets anybody had ever seen. And the crash of 1929 just leveled them, left them almost unable to function. Would it be fair to say uh, a, a couple of uh, thoughts, Diana? Firstly, it's always easy, of course, to compare then with now. Yeah. One equivalent might be, obviously, there was a great deal of inequality back in the 20s as there is today in the 2020s. But one equivalence might be that it was a lopsided economy in the sense that the boom of the 20s was driven by the automotive sector, which at that point was, of course, high tech in the same way as the boom of, if there is a boom of the 2020s, or certainly the prosperity of the 2020s, is driven by uh, computer technology, digital technology. Are there equivalents in that sense? I think there is to, to a great degree. Obviously, the automotive industry was the heart and soul of the American economy in the 20s, providing a great engine of, uh, of uh, new growth and power. But railroads remained... Uh, uh, significant piece of the of the economy textiles were employed probably more american workers than any other sector um, and these were very uh low wage jobs in the textile field um so there were it was a more diverse economy than just the automobile but certainly if you look at what on the on the margin was being added that was new it was the automobile and then towards the end of that period andrew of course the, the darling of technology, uh, Radio Corporation of America. Radio started to come uh, online in the late 1920s, and the sale of radio uh, radio sets 
it for your living room, which was unheard of uh, prior to that day, became uh, a new driver of, uh, of consumer. Uh, and ironically so, enough, of course, it was technology that FDR was able personally or politically to take advantage of. You know that the market crashed in, in 1929. Everyone knows that. But it crashed several times. The the most brutal crashes were in, what, 1930 or 1931? Yes. I mean, some Wall Street uh, veterans refer to that period from November of 1929 to April of 1930 as the dead cat bounce. You know, the, the cat was dead, but nevertheless, it, it bounced up a bit until April, regained about half of its losses in the uh, in the uh, October November crash but then from that recovery point in April 1930 it descended almost steadily until Ju July of 1932 and by the time it hit that nadir it had wiped out nearly 90% of the market value on the day before the October 29 crash so it was a a degree of loss that we've never uh, seen anything like in this country's history. So remind us, Diana, of, of the politics of the time. Uh, Herbert Hoover was president, yeah. a man he who had... history has not treated particularly kindly. We just did a show about Richard Nixon, another figure not well treated by history. Perhaps Hoover is a little bit more innocent than, than Nixon. Um, and then, of course, there is the great FDR, who at that point wasn't so great. So remind us of the politics sure. and, uh, and, uh, and when and how FDR came to power. Sure. And they were fascinating politics. The, the 1920s were, uh, were a Republican decade, almost wall to wall. They opened with the election of Warren Harding in 1920. That was the first election in which women were allowed to vote. Harding was elected, died in office, leaving in power Calvin Coolidge, even more conservative than Harding. Coolidge but conservative in a in a in a in a nineteenth century sense. In a very Victorian way, yes, cons conservative in that he, he he saw a very constrained role for government in the life of the country. He saw a, a, he was adamantly opposed to organized labor, adamantly. Um, he uh, felt that the business of America was business and government's job was to get out of the way and let business do whatever it needed to do to produce prosperity. And uh, that mentality, which, uh, of course, obtained during Coolidge's two terms, was embraced to a large degree by Herbert Hoover. You're right that maybe he has been a little bit more... Uh, uh, more condemned than he should have been um, because at the time the depression began to slide in 1930 hoover uh, insisted on doing far more than his conservative republican brethren believed he should now what he was doing was woefully inadequate to the need at that time um, but he still did display a belief that well government's got to do something but to it's be fair like, to, to Coolidge, Diana, uh, he was ambivalent at best about the stock market uh, hysteria. He was very nervous. I remember we, we did a couple of shows on, on Coolidge with biographers. When he left office, he was very nervous yes. about the, this boom. He, he, yes, he didn't he see it as being 
supported by any sort of economic foundational economics. He was nervous about it. And actually, in his private papers, Herbert Hoover was too. Earlier in Coolidge's administration, Hoover, who was Secretary of Commerce for Coolidge, was um, outraged by the speculation, the lending that was financing so much of this hot money on Wall Street and tried to cool those jets before he even became uh, became president. Um, it, so it, he as well was skeptical about this this Wall Street um, uh, hysteria that was that was going on, but he just did not feel that there was anything that any lever that government had in its hand that could change anything. Um, and so he tried to talk it down. He you know poo pooed speculation, urged people to you know save their money wisely and uh, and stay out of this crazy circus casino that was going on downtown. Now. With in, in 29, that tension finally breaks. Uh, bankers have been defying the, both the Federal Reserve and the president to continue to lend to finance speculation on Wall Street. With the crash of 29, that breaks apart. And very quickly into the 30s, you see a collapse in consumer demand, uh, a sharp increase in unemployment cut back in hours and wages and manufacturing all across the country. And by the end of 1930, Hoover knows he has a very, very serious problem. And the irony of Hoover, of course, is he was a technocrat. He made yeah, his name. An engineer, yeah. Uh, he made his name in the First World War, successfully managing the, the war effort in Belgium. So there's a great deal of irony. A, a Stanford-educated fellow who probably would be quite at home these days in Silicon Valley. So let's yeah. remind ourselves of the the politics within the Democratic Party, because yes. that wasn't monolithic either when it, it came to Wall Street or capitalism. It wasn't in that 1928 election is intriguing to look at, as you point out, from both sides of the partisan divide. It was in 1928. It was just a given that Hoover was going to win. I mean, there was just no way he could lose. He was running against um, a quixotic figure in New York City history. Uh, and New York state history, a former New York governor, Al Smith. Catholic, now, of course. Catholic and, and anti-prohibition. He was a wet, as they say. He, he favored the repeal of pro prohibition. Um, and he, he was Catholic. He was extremely parochial, Andrew. I don't think he, before he started to run for president, he rarely even left the environs of New York City. Um, his theme he was a rather song colorful on the campaign, figure, wasn't he, Diana? He Entertaining, was good sense of humor. He did, although his relationship with, with Roosevelt, which I unfold in the book, was, was troubling and did not, uh, uh, did not uh, speak very well about his personal loyalty. But he was, he was the nominee for the Democrats. He was going to run to repeal prohibition, hoping for a lot of support from the cities, immigrant populations that, that hated prohibition, um, and he was going to face Protestant rural opposition that would be loyal to Hoover. So what's going to happen in New York State? He's stepping down as New York State governor to run for president. He recruited a young former state senator, vice presidential candidate in the unsuccessful Democratic run in 1920 named Franklin D. Roosevelt. He recruited him to run for governor of New York in this GOP landslide year. Uh, Roosevelt was reluctant to run. He had been stricken with polio in, uh, in, in 1921. 
and was still recovering and hoping that he would be able to walk again. He never was, but he was reluctant to return to campaigning. But Al Smith prevailed on him to do it. And in that epic election, um, Al Smith uh, lost by a landslide. He failed to even carry his home state of New York. But in the wee hours of the day after the election, when the upstate returns began to come in, Franklin Roosevelt squeezed out uh, a win by less than 26,000 votes. In the Let's whole. just remind ourselves of this man, Franklin uh, Roosevelt. We've done many shows on, on him. One with Jonathan Darman, uh, one of his many biographers, who argued that it was the experience of polio that transformed him into a historic leader. Tell us about your reading of FDR in the 20s and early 30s before he came to power. What were his politics? It's never clear. I mean, one of his great strengths, but also the frustrations of, of FDR, is it's sometimes hard to put your finger on it. He wasn't an ideologue, and we don't have a way of thinking about politicians today that does not involve ideology. He was a pragmatist. He was an idealistic realist, but he, he wasn't uh, you know, committed to, to one set of, of ironclad principles that he would apply regardless of the circumstances. He was facing, when he was running for office in 32, he was facing an unprecedented degree of hardship in this country. And he knew nobody had the answers. If they had the answers, they already would have come up with them. So it was clear to him that he had to, to think outside the box, to think in innovative and experimental ways. So we're frustrated by Roosevelt, I think, that we can't put him in a nice, tidy, progressive, democratic, liberal box. Uh, he did some things that were quite liberal and quite progressive. On the other hand, he failed to confront the Jim Crow segregation in the South. Um, and as a result, many of his programs uh, shortchanged uh, Black Americans. Yeah, I was just, I'm not sure if you've been up to the FDR, I'm sure you have the FDR Museum. Uh, in Hyde Park, and I was just there for a, a wonderful exhibition on FDR and African Americans. Yes, it, and it's absolutely worth seeing. Um, so, so FDR was not by no means perfect, but he was a, a pragmatist who was committed to making democracy work. And I think, if you'll indulge me for a minute, I think it's worth reminding people that of the circumstances that prevailed at the time he was sworn in, in March of 1930. Yeah, we need to remind ourselves that there was no safety net of any kind. It, there was no safety net. More than 25% of this country was out of work. And people who did have jobs were on short wages or short hours or scared to death they were going to lose their jobs. As the day when he was sworn in, Every state in the union had either closed its banks or restricted withdrawals from its banks to save them from runs by panicked depositors. And with the banks closed, it was impossible for our financial markets to function. So our commodity markets and our stock exchanges, including the premier exchange, the New York Stock Exchange, had closed their doors during the night. Um, before Roosevelt was sworn in on Saturday, March 4th, 1933. So he took office in a nation that was almost on its knees 
manufacturing had almost completely stopped. Consumer spending had almost completely stopped. Unemployment was through the roof. And in many cities, it was 40%, 50% at a city level. The banks had stopped and our financial markets had stopped. It's hard for us to imagine. Yeah, could have been, the whole thing could have been written by a Hollywood script, right? Oh, it, it was desperate. And that circumstance, all of those circumstances had, that had been building through two and a half, almost three desperate depression years had had a political consequence. Uh, on the left and on the right, extremists were becoming increasingly active, increasingly angry, increasingly rebellious against mainstream democracy. And Roosevelt knew that. He knew that he, he had one roll of the dice here to persuade the American people that democracy could get them out of this. Because and it's worth reminding Italy, everyone, of course, that Mussolini was in power in Italy. Hitler, exactly. Hitler had come to power, power in Germany. So, yes. Yes. so we're going to take a, you've, you've got us to 1932 when uh, FDR won the election, came to power, Diana. I'm going to take a short break now. And then afterwards, I want to get into the meat of, of the book, Taming the Streets. So we are talking with Diana uh, Henriquez, the author of Taming the Street, a wonderful new book about FDR's um, uh, successful challenge to Wall Street and capitalism in the 1930s. We're going to take a short break. I'm going to remind everyone that the show is sponsored by Liberty's magazine. We're going to run a, a short ad for that, and then we'll be back in two seconds. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties, it's not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can check out more about Liberties at libertiesquarterly.com. We are talking with the great Diana uh, Henriquez, the author of Taming the Street, the Old Guard, the New Deal, uh, and FDR's Fight to Regulate American Capitalism. Uh, in the first half of the show, we set the scene for the 1930s. So, Diana, take it away. What happens when he comes to power? Well, we one of the most uh, remarkable um, uh, periods of legislative activity in this country's history uh, followed his swearing in on March 4th. They, it came to be known as the 100 Days. And in the first 100 days of FDR's um, uh, administration, he uh, almost single-handedly uh, saved the banking system. Now, he saved it by in, imbuing confidence back into the system. Herbert Hoover had been uh, nagging Roosevelt to repudiate his New Deal, all these plans for business regulation, all these plans for um, uh, public spending, saying that that was that it, people were pulling their money out of the banks because they were they didn't trust the New Deal and FDR. And FDR said, no, I think they're pulling their money out of the banks because they don't trust the banks. And so he imposed a four-day bank moratorium, got emergency bank legislation adopted. And when the banks reopened, people lined up around the block to put money into them, not to take money out. So starting with the banking crisis, which was the topic of his very first fireside chat, these were 
personal radio conversations that Roosevelt had with the American people. He was a great master of radio, as you said earlier. Um, and that first topic was the banking system. Here's what we're doing to fix it. Here's what you have to do as, as citizens to help us work this out. And together, we'll pull it together. And he did. Among the other bills that he passed in that first 100 days was something called the Truth and Securities Bill. And he campaigned on this quite clearly. He said that the day of Wall Street being able to sell stocks and bonds with deceptive lies and bogus made up numbers and, and obfuscation were over. Uh, from here on out, if you were going to sell securities to the American public, you had to tell them the truth about what that company did with financials provided. So the Truth and Securities Bill, which we now call the 1933 Securities Act, was in enacted in that first 100 days. It took a little longer to get the big Wall Street watchdog set up. It wasn't until the summer of 1934 that Roosevelt was able to get that set up. But along the way, he pushed through banking uh, legislation that strengthened the Federal Reserve and that set up the FDIC to ensure bank deposits and make sure that people were not ruined and had their nest eggs completely smashed if their banks crashed. 34, he gets passage and it was a hard one fight because Wall Street was fighting him every step of the way. He wins passage of the Securities Exchange Act of 1934 that created the, Securi the Securities and Exchange Commission. Then he, the shocks all, he shocks all his new dealers by picking as its first chairman, one of the wiliest Wall Street speculators on the street. Um, Joe Kennedy, Joseph P. Kennedy. Yeah, and that's one of the surprising things about your book is that Joe Kennedy hasn't had the greatest of presses, but he comes out somewhat heroically in this narrative. Is that fair? Well, I, um, I follow him into his darker years in the book, but I do give him credit for his management of the SEC in its earliest days. I, I call it a masterpiece of public service. And it was. He took words on paper on a couple of statutes and, and gave them flesh and blood and muscle and made them work, hired great people to run it, established its independence, uh, established a record of, of, uh, of impartiality. One of the first things he did, which sounds a little unlike the Joe Kennedy of old, was he put all of his own investments into a personal trust and gave an order that no changes were to be made in his own portfolio so long as he was at the SEC. And that set an ethical standard to avoid conflicts of interest that uh, that spread through the whole agency. So he, he got this watchdog up and running for Roosevelt and then handed it over to a young protege of his own and of Roosevelt's named Jim Landis. Now, James Landis was a law professor uh, from Harvard and a very brainy guy, but lacked uh, Kennedy's diplomacy, lacked his charm, his skill at, um, at mollifying Wall Street. And that period under Landis became more of a, of a rule writing, technologically focused period. But after uh, Landis retired, left to go back to, uh, to academia, Roosevelt defied Wall Street and picked as the third chairman of the SEC, William O. Douglas, who went on to serve on our Supreme Court as the longest serving Supreme Court justice. But most people 
he served on the Supreme Court for so long, most people never knew what it was he did that prompted FDR. Right. So Douglas and Kennedy come out of this looking pretty good. We did a show with Derek Liebar. I'm sure you're familiar with his work. He just wrote a book about FDR's four key lieutenants, also touching on Eleanor Roosevelt. Uh, Thinking of Clinton and the divisions around the people who surrounded him, were the key lieutenants within the FDR, the early administration, were they all in agreement pretty much on his strategy? Uh, They were not. Um, and that's why it was so important that the people he, he named to the SEC were as persuasive, as competent, uh, and as aggressive as they were. Um, FDR Secretary of the Treasury, Henry, Henry Morgenthau, felt from the beginning that Roosevelt was being too hostile towards business. And he was constantly nagging Roosevelt to be nicer to these business people, to to not be so hostile and angry towards them, to try to placate them and mollify them. Um, And so he was always kind of a drag on what FDR wanted to do in the area of financial reform. So he was Um, the Rubin. To a large degree, although much less experienced than Rubin. I mean, Morgenthau was a, was a decent, uh, well-intentioned man, but he, he was a farmer from, from the Hudson Valley. I mean, he had very, very little experience in the work that Roosevelt gave him to do. Kennedy himself, although he started out as a, an avid reformer, an avid regulator, um, later became more nervous about the, the role of regulation and began to shape shift a little bit and edge, edge away, uh, mostly on fiscal matters though, Andrew, more, uh, he wanted a balanced budget. He wanted you know less deficit spending. He, he kind of left the SEC alone. In fact, it was his baby and he tried to protect it uh, as a watchdog. Um, so there were, there were always tugs and pushes and pulls. So it, it fell to the men and women at the SEC to make sure that they were keeping their fences mended, that they were, uh, and Douglas was especially adept at this, that they were maintaining relationships in Congress that could help protect them. And FDR did them the greatest favor of all. I mean, Landis, Kennedy, Landis, and Douglas all had walk-in privileges at the Oval Office. Roosevelt followed what was happening in their agency. They, he knew what, who was attacking them. He defended them quite publicly and openly, which helped empower them, of course. And what about the but economy, was- Diana? The argument against FDRs had the Second World War not broken out. The American economy would still, if not be in depression, certainly wasn't energized. I don't think there's a strong uh, economic case to make for that. Um, I, I understand that there are those who feel that um, that it, better monetary policy by the Fed um, would have would have helped sooner. But the fact is, between 1932 and 1938, so that is pre-arsenal of democracy uh, enterprise in the U.S. Between 32 and th- 33 and 38, the U.S. economy grew somewhere between 8% and 10% a year. So now from very low numbers, we're talking about an economy on its knees. So yes, you're getting big annual increases as a result of fiscal stimulus and belatedly uh, smarter Fed policy. 
But we do see an extraordinary revival. Unemployment was cut in half, and this is before 39. So it was still extraordinarily high by our standards. But nevertheless, it had fallen uh, from 25% down to about 14. So uh, I don't think you can make a persuasive case that FDR uh, was bailed out by the war. And did, uh, uh, and was this taming of the street, was it successfully articulated in political terms? We already talked about FDR's success uh, in, in, on, on radio as, uh, as, as a man able to articulate his vision and was very much beloved by the American people, re-elected uh, with increasing majorities in the 1930s. Um, was this spelled out, the, the taming of the street, this attempt to yes. regulate American capitalism in the home of capitalism? It absolutely was. And I think that was one of the, the strongest elements of his case. He told the American people what he was going to do and why, that, that he was not going to, to let Wall Street revert to the bad old days that had brought the country to its knees. That just was not going to happen. And he was able to um, put this cop on Wall Street. That was his phrase. We need a cop on Wall Street, a watchdog, someone that could, could uh, keep tabs and make sure that the overall honest people there were not uh, undermined and, uh, and outmatched by the crooks on the street. So I think he had, a, of course, he had a great publicity machine in the uh, in the media, which was fascinating, fascinated in covering uh, uh, this fight. And he also had a made-for-Hollywood um, opponent, uh, an antagonist in this fight in the person of Richard Whitney. Yeah, I looked at his photo, and we, he looks really unpleasant. Oh, you know, that's not a good photo of him. This is the photo on uh, Wikipedia. He's certainly not a man who'd buy a used car or a new car from. Oh, no, he actually was quite elegant, um, uh, a Harvard uh, rowing champ, uh, tall, little little barrel-chested, but always beautifully tailored, very dapper, and much better looking than that picture shows him. Uh, he was the president of the New York Stock Exchange. Acting president on the day of the crash became officially president that following spring. So in, in April of 1930, just as the market is about to fall on its face, he takes over as president and uh, remains president for the next five years. And that put him in the position of rallying the opposition to Roosevelt's reforms, which he did very effectively. There were near run fights that I describe here in this book where um, if Whitney had had a few more weeks, he could have turned the tide and, and blocked what Roosevelt was trying to do. Um, his, his personal life uh, was a great a great drama, and since anyone can look him up in Wikipedia, I'm not giving the plot of my book away to say that while he was fighting Roosevelt tooth and tongue to to block these reforms, he was a, a secretly an embezzler who was stealing from his own clients and breaking the rules. So there's the a little bit of Bernie Madoff about it. Yeah, yeah, they had. They, I saw some similarities actually. So let, it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating and an enormously important story. Let's let's um, fast forward to the twenty twenties. How relevant, Diana, is it today? I mean, the America of the twenty twenties, for all the inequality, is quite different from the America of the nineteen 
early 1930s, isn't it? In, in many ways it is, Andrew, but I think we face many of the same challenges that, that require an understanding of financial reform. Um, for one thing, the old guard has never stopped fighting against the New Deal reforms. Uh, they're on the ballot in 2024, trust me. In his State of the Union address in 2018, Donald Trump bragged that no administration in history had ever repealed as many regulations as his had. And he intends to continue doing that if brought back into office. He also has appointed judges who are hostile uh, to uh, investor rights and very pro-business. Uh, there are cases moving through those more conservative courts that are going to raise real problems for our regulatory machinery as we inherited it from the New Deal. So the fight isn't over. It has to be, uh, it has to be met in, uh, in every generation. Uh, our watchdogs have been underfunded. Uh, they've been uh, nibbled to death by ducks. We've seen you know, the, that death of a thousand cuts, little bits of, of power taken away, areas put off limits. Look at, look at the 2008 meltdown, which many uh, people would be far more familiar with than the 1929 crash. One of the key for sources of instability in 2008 was something called credit default swaps. Well, what were credit default swaps except a vast field of unregulated securities that were sweeping through the system and undermining uh, the, the stability of the financial system. Look at cryptocurrency today. What is cryptocurrency but a vast field of unregulated whatever, un unregulated pixels. I can't even call it a security. Uh, I'm not exactly sure. Is it just, what... in your view, essentially a Ponzi scheme? I won't call it a Ponzi scheme, but I think it is actually, a, it, it's a, a solution looking for a problem. Um, we've, we've seen an enormous collapse in the crypto market in the last two years. There is no essential economic activity that we've been unable to carry out because of that. Now, if you can imagine if, if our banks had been going through a similar crisis, the U.S. dollar going through a similar crisis over the past two years, there'd be a lot that we would not be able to do as an economy. So it's hard for me to say that crypto is essential to our economy because it's been in chaos and nothing much has happened except a lot. And what about on the antitrust phrase, uh, on the antitrust um, yes. front, uh, the, the the Justice Department is just to about to launch a, a, a major new case against Google. Uh, is this relevant in terms of the 30s? It is. Uh, monopoly power was one of the things that deeply concerned Roosevelt and and not just Roosevelt. His, his it, it fifth was, cousin, of course. Absolutely. Teddy Roosevelt, who was actually Eleanor Roosevelt's uncle, is the easiest way to show that connection. Uh, uh, Franklin Roosevelt was married to Teddy Roosevelt's niece. Um, he actually gave her away when they were married in New York at the ceremony. So Teddy Roosevelt, too, had seen the rise of these trusts, huge combines of conglomerates that stifled competition that either shut down or bought up every new uh, innovator who tried to, to, to carve out a new space in the marketplace. 
So that had been a problem since the beginning of the 20th century, uh, before uh, Franklin Roosevelt came to power. But it remained a problem. The antitrust legislation that had been passed earlier in that uh, in that period, the Sherman Antitrust Act, was falling into dissuetude. It was not a, a, a useful tool that was being uh, fully enforced, certainly not during the 1920s. So when uh, Franklin Roosevelt came in, he faced this increasingly concentrated economy, and he just felt in his soul that this was not healthy, uh, that, that attention needed to be paid to how to keep the markets competitive. So he identified antitrust policy as important. He established and put in charge a very strong lawyer to head antitrust. But of all of the financial um, initiatives uh, that FDR uh, brought on board, that's the one that suffered most from the war. Let, let's end with politics. Uh, we've done many shows on the relevance or irrelevance, both from conservatives and, uh, and, and, and the left, progressives on, um, on the New Deal. We did one with Michael Tomaski. I'm sure you're familiar with his work, The Middle Out. He says we need the yes, progressives. I, need. I love The Middle Out. I yeah, he needs book. to. We need we the progressives need to go back and Biden to the New Deal. Uh, and there was an interesting um, uh, op-ed in the FT this morning uh, by Rana Faruha has been on the show about even America's new right is beginning to discover anti-capitalism. Uh, what can, what should we learn in political terms today in the 2020s about uh, regulating capitalism and addressing the political ramifications of that? I, I, I think it comes down to a, a question of communication. And I know that sounds, sounds overly simplistic, but um, I'll take that the mantle of the great communicator right off Ronald Reagan and slap it on FDR because Roosevelt was able to communicate exactly how seemingly esoteric things like federal bank deposit insurance or the truth and securities laws or the federal the Securities and Exchange Commission paid benefits for the average American. And I think at a time when populism, I'm putting that in air quotes here, when populism is is uh, allegedly on the rise. If you look at the, its actual policies, it's not doing much to help us populate, us people. Uh, it's not doing much to make our uh, our investments safer, to make our uh, uh, our playing field a little more level for uh, for us and especially for our kids. So I think the the political moment now is. Uh, an opportunity to, to yes, to re-embrace our inner Franklin Roosevelt, to re-embrace the ideals that he he brought uh, into office. I, uh, one of the most haunting things Roosevelt ever said was when some visitor at the White House said, well, if you can cure this depression, you'll be our greatest president. But if you can't, you'll be our worst. And Roosevelt corrected and he said, no, if I can't, I'll be our last. He knew that democracy had one more chance to fix this economy and to turn it into something that benefited average Americans. I think we're close to another moment like that where Americans need to be educated about 
how the a regulated economy, a regulated capitalism benefits them. And Washington needs to get smarter about how it conducts that regulation. So I think it's a, it's a topic that is critically important. You've heard people say, and I have too, Andrew, that democracy is on the ballot in 2024. And in a way, I'm saying the same thing when I say financial regulation is on the ballot in 2024, because Roosevelt understood that you could not have a strong democracy with broad public support if you did not also have well-regulated, fair markets in a fair economy. So he saw them as two wheels holding up, uh, uh, you know, two, two struts holding up an important uh, uh, concept of popular democracy. So I think we we need to become smarter about how important our financial regulations, the, the New Deal reforms that we've lived under for so long, we take them for granted now, how much they have um, sustained the working and middle class and under how much they're under threat today and what we need to do to protect them. 